Psalm 148, 3 through 10. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. The magnificence of our God-created world is something which is beyond belief, and magnificence is, is everywhere. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. I love the variety of butterflies and birds. I love wildflowers. I really do believe that the land teaches us what we need to know, just as, just as it nurtures us and, and feeds us and heals us. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. Just like the vast ocean and salty air. Still the place I feel the most at home and the most really connected to myself and to God within me. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. And then the, the light comes up, it's quiet, and you're out there and you see some birds flying and you smell the soil. That's incredible. Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Akila Mast. I'm Harrison Horst. Thanks for joining us. We began our first three episodes in West Virginia, but today we're taking you to the next stop on our road trip. The lively town of Bluffton, Ohio. Population 4,100. arrived in Bluffton with a goal, talk to some farmers. Unfortunately, we had very little planned and no car, but in a town as small and friendly as Bluffton, we didn't have too much to worry about. A couple phone calls and one unexpected lunch meeting later, and we were sitting down with, well, not a farmer exactly, but it was a great start. All right. I am Matthew Yoder. I'm the pastor at Grace Mennonite Church in beautiful Pandora, Ohio. Pandora is just outside of Bluffton, where Matthew moved just a few years ago. Before then, he pastored out in Washington, in another farming community. So he brings a unique perspective to the relationship between God, people, and land. What drew you to rural areas over urban or, or suburban? Well, when I was in seminary, everything I was hearing and learning about was, was about urban ministry. And I started to think, well, what about, you know, what about the country church? What about rural ministry? Is, is that sector of our tradition, the Mennonite Church getting left behind in all of this, this big urban push. And so it was those questions that kind of propelled me, among many others, uh, into the rural church. Bluffton is surrounded by farmland in all directions. When you drive out of town, it's not too hard to find your way around. The roads are set up in grid form, one mile between each intersection, and the road names follow the chronological order of the alphabet. Caring for the land means something here by default where so many generations of families have been farming for decades. 
you know, it, it can be tempting, I think, to look at the biblical text and say, well, you know, in, in the Torah, it's every seven years, you're supposed to not plant your crops that year and let your land rest. Well, and, and that makes sense in Israel, if you know the, the kind of the geology there and, and the soil composition and everything, you actually need that seventh year so that enough moisture can reaccumulate in the soil mm-hmm. from, a, from a year worth of rain to grow crops again, or else the soil will dry out and turn to sand and blow away. So that's part of it. But what, what makes sense here? You know, what, what makes sense in Putnam County, Ohio, where that used to be a swamp, and so they have to drain off the extra water in order to plant it, you know, what, what does it look like to treat the land as, as a separate entity unto itself that's, that's sacred and has rights of its own? You know, not just as a, a commodity or as something that generates commodities and generates wealth, but as almost how do, you, how do you hold the land up and say, you know, the land deserves rights too, just because it's the land, because it's God's creation. We were coming from a conference called Rooted and Grounded in Elkhart, Indiana, where we had just spent a few days immersed in topics related to Anabaptism and the land. Matthew was asking some of the same questions that we were hoping to answer in Bluffton. How can we model right relationship with the earth as told in the Bible and apply it to our modern context when we feel so removed from much of the natural world? And as someone who does not work directly with the land, what can we learn from those who do? Matthew was introduced to us by our new friend, Wendy Chapeldick. None of these Bluffton interviews would have happened without Wendy, who very graciously offered to be our personal tour guide and chauffeur. Without her, we may not have talked to any farmers at all. Okay, I want to show you something here. So Ray's farm is here, and the back of their farm bumps into an organic wheat farmer. Um, David Moser is the farmer that I told you about, big farmer, he owns all this land. Okay, but his brother owns this farm. So their mother lives there. But the family farm is just across this cornfield. That's a traditional, that's an original Swiss house. Okay, this is it. Uh-huh. A little red building. It's the Meadow Mall. A whole village basically immigrated in mass. Wow. And settled here together. They immigrated together. That's it! Oh my the goodness! Bike. That's the bike path that'll take you through the winter dip. I'm pretty sure it's his dad that planted a thousand oaks. Ask Bob about that. I think it's his family. We did, in fact, ask Bob about the oaks. Did, oh. did Wendy put you on this? She did, <laughs> yes. She asked about the oaks. This is Bob Suter. Okay, I'm Bob Suter from Pandora, Ohio. Bob works on a farm with his brother and nephew just outside of Bluffton. A vegetable farm and green farm. So we grow cabbage, peppers, squash, and soybeans and corn. We sat down with Bob at the end of his workday by the entrance to one of his barns. It was a beautiful fall day, just a little chilly, and his most recent harvest of butternut squash sat on pallets behind us. Okay. I grew up right here on this farm, my parents' farm. Early on, I was a farmer and always wanted to be one because I was connected to that. I liked being out in the fields doing what my dad did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, in that sense, the connection to the earth was right there, you know, hands-on mm-hmm. in the dirt. Bob is the sixth generation working on his family farm, making his nephew the seventh. 
His family has worked this property since the 1840s, and the respect and care he has for the land shows in the way that he talks about it. When I come out in the morning, like I say, we start early in the morning before the sun's even up. But it's still a light, enough light we can see. And then the, the light comes up, or it's just um, just kind of a warm feeling. It's not cold. And, and or evening time sunsets, you know, just the beauty of the sky. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if it's boastful, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's so sad that people who live in the cities can't see the stars because of all the lights mm -hmm. or can't see the sunrise because of the buildings mm -hmm. or the sunsets or experience nature and that was just because they don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel so fortunate. Bob has weathered hands and wrinkles around his eyes that become more pronounced with his warm smile. He thinks a lot about doing the right thing, about being a good person. One thing we talk a lot about is climate change. Have you seen over the years a change in weather patterns? We wonder if that's something that's like talked about in the farming community you know, at all. Well, it's difficult to say. You know, this, whatever I say is anecdotal and right. somewhat subjective. But it seems to us that as growing up, rainfall was more moderated, meaning we'd have an inch one day or a half inch or a three quarter inch, you know, and kind of spread out. Now we'll get a two inch rain or maybe a three inch rain that we don't seem to remember being that way, mm -hmm. yeah. which isn't good. Mm -hmm. We like the moderated amounts. Yeah. You know, somebody have to look at the records to really know that's true. Mm -hmm. That's our sense of it. This isn't the first time we've heard this story. Remember Sibo from episode one? She told us how, aside from the droughts, when the rains did come, they came in a deluge. And Durga, our friend from Nepal in episode three, said the same thing. There seems to be a trend here, but this is in Ohio, not Zimbabwe or Nepal. What do you say that the words climate change come up at all among um, your f farming friends? Well, only when we joke about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, boy, it's really hot. Yeah, this global warming's killing us. <laughs> well, we know that's not necessarily what that means. Right. Um, so, no, we don't talk about it, but it's in the farm papers, mm -hmm. magazines, you know, periodicals. And so we read about mm. that and what's behind it. And this is interesting because, you know, I have some conservative friends or acquaintances that, nah, it's just politicians talking or it's they, whoever they happens to be, wants to have an agenda here. And then the farm papers started saying, well, you know, this is a real fact. This is for real. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, that they're saying now that they haven't gone so far as to say why yet. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone on a large scale will say that. I mean, there's a lot of debate about that, I guess. Yeah. But at least it, it was acknowledged by the industry leaders that this isn't just something dreamt up. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would think though that when you ask on my in the community, like I don't talk, but I would I would suspect though that most would say they may accept that it's a real thing, but it's just more regulations and more things that we shouldn't have to deal with. Mm -hmm. Farmers don't like regulations. Mm -hmm. We're independent. You know, to do things our way and that there's some agenda out there and it's going to cost a lot of money to fix. We don't want to do that. Regulations are something that farmers do talk a lot about, and we heard from Bob that the most recent controversy has to do with Lake Erie. You heard about Lake Erie? Um, algae bloom? Mm -hmm. That's a big thing. Oh, yeah. what's that again? Lake Erie, there's what's called an algae bloom. And Toledo takes water from Lake Erie for drinking water, well, just all the water they use up there. 
And when the algae bloom happens, this algae grows on the lake mm -hmm. because there's so many uh, nutrients being put into it by the rivers. Oh. That makes us toxic for consumption or, I don't know, even washing out. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, everybody was a shutdown. You couldn't use water. I mean, it was a big move. The algae bloom was made up of a toxic strain of algae called microcystis, which feeds off of nitrogen and phosphorus and grows in warm temperatures. Nitrogen and phosphorus also happen to be common components of fertilizers used on farms like Bob's. The height of the crisis was in August 2014, when half a million people in Toledo were banned from using tap water for drinking, cooking, or even washing. So that really raised the stakes. And so, okay, where's this problem occurring? Or why is it occurring? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because of the nutrients flowing into the lake and perhaps climate change in terms of temperature. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an unknown factor, I guess, yet, or debatable. Who's dumping this stuff in the rivers? Is it industry? Is it farmers putting fertilizer in the field that washes off? So there's a big push by, uh, well, Farm Bureau in Ohio, advocate for farmers, and the state legislature and other interested parties to try to do this in a way that's workable for farmers and advantageous and not too regulatory. We clearly had a lot to learn about the complexities of land use and food production and the influence of the climate on these things. The week before, we talked to a man who lives a few hours away in Bloomington, Indiana. He's not a farmer, he's a scientist, but the way he talks about the God-created world reminded us of our friends in Bluffton. And he was also able to answer some of our questions about climate change. I would be delighted to tell you who I am and what I'm doing. My name is Bennett Brabson. I am a professor of physics at Indiana University. Actually, I am a retired professor of physics. Ben's enthusiasm is infectious and seems to manifest itself most often in the form of kindness. On this day, he was wearing jeans and a blue sweater over his button-down with a matching blue backpack that would fit him right in at any college campus. Uh, my career there has been uh, enormously pleasant and uh, a great pleasure. So I am a person who I think of as a person who loves to create knowledge, to create knowledge by actually learning things about our world and then putting it in a form where others can understand it. Ben has been a physicist since 1968, for over 50 years, and when climate science started becoming more predominant in the 1990s, he dove right in. We are first scientists. Uh, before we are climate scientists. That is, the idea is to, is to really explore nature. The magnificence of our God-created world is something which is beyond belief. So expressing gratitude for that is something that we need to remember as scientists. Having said that, the question then is, what is our role in, in this discussion? It seems that our role as scientists is not strictly that of taking sides on issues. Our role quite, quite in the reverse is to, is to look at nature and this God-created world of ours and try to understand how it works as you, look at, as you look at a prism or a beautiful stone. Ben told us that one of his favorite anecdotes is a story about how Isaac Newton when someone remarked on how impressive his discoveries were, said, well, it's sort of like picking up a pebble on the beach and noticing how beautiful it is. And that's kind of how Ben feels about the elegance of the system as a whole. 
if it turned out to be a really chaotic system where you couldn't really make projections or predict predictions and the mathematics had nothing to do with it and you couldn't count on the sun rising and some days it rose and sometimes it didn't and, and grass sometimes was pink in the morning and sometimes green and orange and it's not that way at all. The remarkable thing is the mathematics really works and that's cool. That is simply cool if you think about it that you can actually make projections for the next solar eclipse and get it within you know, milliseconds. The fact that you can actually do that is because God chose to use mathematics in a really interesting way. And for reasons that are way beyond our understanding, it is magnificent that these rules exist and that the rules are really cool rules, interesting rules, fun rules. So from the inside, we're looking at this as a wonderful puzzle. Um, of enormous complexity with great beauty. The framing of the universe as a wonderful puzzle of enormous complexity is helpful context for the way Ben approaches climate science. So the climate system is one of these tiny pieces of this little tiny fraction of the world which God has put us in. And we are sitting here overwhelmed and amazed by that piece. From the point of view of climate change, it never occurs to us to think about whether we should believe in climate change. The word belief in climate change doesn't make sense. You don't say, I believe in green grass. Green grass, good thing, I believe in it. It doesn't, that doesn't, it's the wrong word. You, you say you look at it, it turns out it does reflect green light. That's a different comment, but to say whether you believe in something or not something is, is, is something else. And as Ben says, that doesn't mean that they have it all figured out either. They're constantly attempting to tweak their models, getting closer and closer to an accurate representation of the way the atmosphere is changing. This allows them to analyze the impact that humans and other factors have on the climate with surprising accuracy. We are, in fact, perfectly capable of changing the environment. We've been doing it forever. In fact, for the last 5,000 years, we've been changing the environment. So this is not new. Uh, you know, all the, think of all the farming that was started 5,000 years ago, which is already changing enormously the nature of, uh, of plant growth, loss of species, and so forth. We happen to be doing it more rapidly now and in a way which is much more destructive, but that's been going on. So I think people are not going to deny the impact of human beings on climate. I think the place where resistance comes uh, from my experience, is in economics. People are really worried about their livelihood. After decades of uncertainty and controversy, Ben says that things are finally starting to solidify, in large part because predictions they made 20 or 30 years ago have been right on target. We have now reached a stage in the last five years, I should say, where you're no longer hearing climate deniers straight away. Because the science is now enormously clear. It is happening, and we're doing it, and it's, it's a, an anthropogenic thing. It's up to us, and we're the ones who are creating the problem. The predictability of Earth systems is something we take for granted, and it's what allows farmers to do what they do. But part of what climate change means is less regularity on the ground. And as we find out, small changes can have unexpected repercussions. This takes us back to Bluffton, where we find ourselves yet again in a car with Wendy Chapadek.
Okay, so we're going to Cedar Cider Press, and this place is fabulous. Um, and I just realized I this may not be the way to Cedar Cider Press. <laughs> nope, it's not. Okay, so we're just gonna turn around. This Cider Press building has been here. Uh, we've been a Mennonite community here since the 1840s. The cider press has been there almost that long. It's yeah. been a cider press for 128 years. But before that, it was something called the Menno Mall, which we call Menno Mall. It was like this awesome everything store. They also instituted a Mennonite museum. Like they'd only been off the boat for 10 years and they made a museum about themselves. <laughs> In the end, we did make it to the cider press. The suitors have been making their cider without additives for decades, and you can only buy it there, at their store, where your gallon is pulled literally straight from the tap. Cider comments aside, when we got there, Wendy introduced us to Nancy Suter, one of the owners of the cider press. To keep the cider operation afloat, the suitors have expanded into a bit of agrotourism, so they have a big corn maze and a pick-your-own-strawberry patch that's pretty popular in the area. But this year, the suitor's entire strawberry crop was ruined by a new pest called the thrip. We heard that thrips usually thrive in warmer climates, and that changing annual temperatures could be moving their range further northward, into Ohio. It's hard to know whether climate variability had anything to do with the strawberry crop failure at the suitor's, or the algae bloom on Lake Erie that Bob was talking about. But it seems like we're seeing more and more of these impacts from just small disruptions in the climate. And new pests aren't the only challenge that farmers in the area are facing. Yeah. Mare, so mare's tail, is, that's a weed that you would have found more often, like further south, right? And it's uh, You started... know, I don't know. I mean, I okay. don't know where that came from. It just came in, and now we're getting the, the ones from the south that are coming. Uh -huh. The water hemp, I guess that's farther west too, but we haven't had it here, but that's coming. And that's a worse weed. Then there's there's weeds down south that we don't want, but you know we eventually will get sooner or later. This is David Moser. David Moser, farmer, Bluffton, Ohio. Like Bob, Dave's farm has been in the family for generations. But unlike Bob, who grows a variety of vegetables, Dave mainly grows soybeans and corn. That makes his farming process a little different. Bob works with others to pick his vegetables by hand but Dave can harvest his entire crop with just a combine. He manages the entire 500-acre farm by himself. Um, do you, the other thing that Bob was telling us about that yesterday was that in Lake Erie there's algae. Oh, yeah, algae. Yeah. yeah. Do you hear about that as a farmer? Are there more regulations in place and that kind of thing? Oh, we hear about that all the time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you get tired uh, of it? Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean... Evidently, we we don't help the problem. You know, I mean, we're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. How much of the problem? That's where the finger pointing starts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now, we're in the finger pointing time. <laughs> and uh, my guess is there will be, you know, the future generations will have to deal with that more than I will. And uh, I guess, as a farmer, I would like to know exactly. What changed? Why we have this problem now, and why we didn't have it 
before. Mm -hmm. And nobody has really said anything about, well, the cause is this, this, and this. Do you and your and the farming community talk about climate change? There's more and more talk. I mean, some people said, well, things are changing, but we don't know what it is. You know, and some people are saying, well, it's climate change. Then others saying, no, that's just the nature of the weather. The weather is always changing. And I don't know whether it's, they don't want to accept the truth that we do have problems out there. And then too, well, what do you do? I mean, if they, if everybody says there's climate change, then what, what do I do as an individual? And that's, that's still up in the air, you know. You had mentioned earlier that this is a time where it, it feels like hearts have kind of been hardened. And yeah. then you mentioned like the finger pointing time. What in particular makes you feel that way? Oh, I don't know, man. I think there's just on both sides. I mean, farmers look at people who chastise them for whatever, you know. And the internet, I think, has made it easier for people to write things down without any accountability. And I feel kind of saddened about that. But I, th I think that we were a lot of removed from farm, and the farmers are removed from the city. We really don't know what, what that life is like. They don't know what our life is like. Are there ways that you feel attacked as a farmer? Or like what what do do people call you out for certain things that frustrate well, you? Well we have this ongoing ethanol debate. We're producing ethanol. It's an oxygenate for the fuel. That's mm -hmm. all it is. You know, we grow it as it's a renewable source. We can grow it every every year. I don't put any more nitrogen on that corn than I did, you know, it's mm -hmm. the same it's the same thing, but yet that's when food prices went up. Mm. Well, you know, corn was seven bucks then. Mm. You know, there was a shortage. Yeah. My life re revolves, my payments revolve around shortages. We have, we're short corn and soybeans, I get more. We have surpluses, I get less. So right now, you know, corn is, what, three? Three something. Well, that does not compute to my well-being. Here, all. Dave leaned over to his computer, opened his browser, and clicked on his most visited bookmark, the Pandora Grain Elevator website, which lists the going prices for corn, beans, and wheat. Pandora Elevator, three twenty-six. Beans at seven seventy-nine. Well, three twenty-six per bushel. Okay. So, so that. You know, back then they, they blamed us for the rising food prices. Well, now, what do we hear? Do we hear that, oh, corn has gone down. The prices at the groceries are coming down. No, they will never come down. And heck, you know what, that wheat it. He leans over to his computer again to check the price of wheat. 505. How many, I don't know how many Wheaties you can make out of a bushel of wheat. <laughs> it's like it's cents on the dollar that, that the farmer is getting. And yet, you know, it costs, what, $3 for a box of Wheaties probably or more? Mm -hmm. And ethanol, I mean, I, I think it's 
wonderful. We got this renewable source, you know, I can take it up there. Then we use the, the DGEs for cattle feed. We don't lose any nutritive value, we can still feed it. We get ethanol to help clean our air up and stuff like that. I mean, I think it's a win-win situation, but no, other people want to get rid of it, mm -hmm. so. I opened up the Pandora Grain Elevator page again just a few weeks ago. Corn is up a little since we've talked to Dave. It's now going for a $3.54 per bushel, but I imagine prices go up during the off-season when the supply is lower. I watched a live quote ticker with soybean prices scroll across the page for a while. What would it feel like to have your annual income completely tied to such an arbitrary number? I remember the feeling of dread I used to get in high school when I logged on to see a recent grade for a large test or project. How much worse must it be for Dave every time he wakes up and opens the Green Elevator website? At the beginning of the episode, Pastor Matthew Yoder talked about treating the land as sacred, with rights of its own. This is hard to do in a society where land is viewed as a commodity, an agent of production, here to produce for us, and then drained of nutrients and biodiversity of life in the process. And after talking to Bob and Dave, I can see where the tension lies. Their livelihoods depend on the yield of their crops, on the land as a production agent. A farm run by one person and their machinery can only survive if the process is streamlined for efficiency. Their decisions are based on demands they have little control over. Market prices, regulations, government subsidies of some crops over others. Bob and Dave both expressed that farming is more than just a job for them. It's a calling, Dave said. A lifestyle. A family legacy. Bob feels fortunate to be a farmer, to live in a way that most people of my generation don't get to experience and he hopes to be a good steward, a caretaker of his land. For farmers whose lives are already dictated by so many factors, by food prices, weather patterns, regulations, and all the rest, how much more challenging will it be moving forward to simultaneously make a living and be good stewards of the land? New insects and weeds, variability in weather, these things are going to require new measures to maintain control. More pesticides and herbicides, fertilizers, things to prop up the soil's nutrients long enough to yield a good crop. These are also the things that could perpetuate other problems, like the algae blooms downstream. As Ben told us, agriculture shaped our relationship with the earth for centuries. The more we manipulate an ecosystem, the more things we set off kilter, the harder we have to work to maintain stability. But I'm not sure it's fair to expect the farmer to initiate change, or to blame them for the algae blooms, when they're responding to so many other demands. So maybe our question should be, what needs to change so that the well-being of the farmer and the health of their land can be compatible?
For our final words today, we're going back to Matthew Yoder, the pastor we heard from at the beginning of the episode. Where, where I go as a, as, a, as a student of Scripture and an exegete and a preacher is that I look at uh, Israel's experience coming out of slavery in Egypt, rebuilding Egypt essentially in their, in their opportunity to be Israel as a nation, and then for that, you know, losing the promised land and, and being taken away in exile. And I look at our country and our country's history and how, how violence plays such a big role. You know, I look through that biblical lens on a one-to-one correspondence and I think, well, you know, the United States is a little bit like Israel in that regard. <laughs> um, you know, we've built this empire of incredible wealth on, you know, violence and, and kind of industrialization and greed, basically, and competition and kind of valorize these things. And so we can continue down that path and, you know, according to Israel's experience, uh, kind of witnessed in the scriptures, that goes towards exile. Or we can round some kind of corner collectively uh, as a people, as a country, as a nation, and have some kind of paradigm shift in our values where, where community and land and personhood becomes primary and the most important thing. And, and then we have a chance. Do I hope that we can actually do that? <laughs> uh, maybe some days. Uh, there's always hope. Uh, some days I feel like nope. It's it's already we're at Belshazzar's feast. It's you know it's too late. <laughs> the writing's on the wall. But we'll see. There's always a pendulum swing to these things. So I have hope in that. Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet. And transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. A special thanks goes to Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who's sponsoring this project. And a quick shout out to our friend Arielle Wagner, who provided the scripture reading from Psalms at the beginning of this episode. And this week's unsung heroes are Lamar and Deborah Nisley, who opened their home to us in Bluffton and sat down with us for our first family dinner in a long while. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Check out the photo essay that goes along with this episode and previews of episodes to come and more. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. See you next week.